If you wanted to describe him, Carmichael Galenti's face, go to a hardware store and buy a can of nails, look in the can, that's his face. From his position as the underboss in the powerful Bonanno family to the head of a lucrative heroin trafficking ring, Carmine Galante was determined to make his way to the top. A ruthless, lowlife, evil, evil individual. The other people around him were absolutely petrified of him. He was a narcotics dealer from day one. That was his trade. By the time Galante was 60, his career seemed finished. He was serving a 20-year sentence on a narcotics conviction. Yet even behind bars, he kept his finger on the pulse and continued to flood New York's streets with heroin. And Galante had bigger dreams, ones that he planned to see come to fruition. There's certain kinds of intelligence that help you get through Harvard, and there are certain kinds of intelligence that help you run a mob in New York City. And if a man can become a mob leader in New York City, he's got that kind of intelligence. In this Audio Boom original series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and the people who were actually there. As he sat in his jail cell, Forces on the street were working to his favor. With the Bonanno family leadership in chaos and heroin prices rising, Galante was biding his time until he could put his plan into action and continue his rise to a fitting end. This is Mafia. In early 1974, after 12 long years in prison, Carmine the Cigar Galante was released on parole. He was 64 years old, and he immediately embarked on a cold-blooded mission to reclaim what he felt was rightfully his. Galante didn't miss a beat. Galante had been paroled for good behavior, and his release was on the condition he wouldn't consort with known felons. But after years in prison, he was ready to set his plan in motion. He immediately set out to claim his place at the head of the Bonanno crime family. Journalist and historian Doug Valentine. Carmine Galante was especially gun uh, cunning. He was um, homicidal, quite frankly. Killed a number of people. Um, so that means that his skills as a murderer were uh, actually uh, farmed out to other mafia families, he was so good at it and so reliable, um, which is something that happens within the mafia. So he was feared and he was powerful. So I think those things, those uh, qualities characterized Galante and enabled him in 1974 to say to his uh, subordinates and other, other mafioso, this is my track record. And within that, that realm, he was known to have um, behaved and comported himself in these ways, and that made him um, uh, acceptable as a, as a leader of predators. Not simply a predator himself, but um, a leader of predators, which, is, which takes a lot of qualities itself. At the time of Galante's release, 
Philip Rastelli had just been appointed head of the Bonanno clan. But Rastelli was about to serve a long jail sentence. Galante took advantage of the power vacuum and assumed the role of acting boss. Then he set about retaking the heroin market. First, he settled scores with any rivals who had moved in on his business while he was in prison. Next, he went to Miami, Dallas, Los Angeles, even Disneyland, making deals with his old associates. And he once again negotiated an increased heroin supply from the Sicilians. Former narcotics agent Frank Panessa. Uh, immediately he was in and he took over and there was such uh, uh, an upsurge of heroin uh, coming into the United States. There wasn't any drought that uh, occasionally you would see where uh, because of good law enforcement uh, uh, shipments were being taken off and, and, and they were looking for heroin. He had that pipeline open and, and I, I remember when I was involved they were pushing the heroin on me. They had such a, a supply of heroin in the United States. Uh, there was no problem. If, if, if you needed X amount of kilos, they were there. They were delivered the next day through the Bonanno family, through, well, uh, Galante and Galante's people. The pipeline worked so well because Galante had figured out a novel way to bring the heroin into the U.S. And a lot of it. When Galante got out, they established... Uh, a means of bringing in major amounts of heroin. They were bringing heroin in on Alitalia flights. Uh, ev every flight that left Milan, Italy, every day, uh, a suitcase or two was put on the flight and unaccompanied. It, it, in those days, you could do that, you know. And when it landed at JFK, of course, the suitcases were marked and you had uh, a uh, employee of Alitalia when they went out to take the, the suitcases and put them in the gondolas uh, uh, from the plane, uh, he would take these marked suitcases and uh, bring them to whoever. A mafia baggage handler would remove the marked suitcase before it even went through customs and then pass it on into the network. It worked beautifully. Because uh, the heroin was put on every flight that left Milan for JFK every day, and the suitcases flew over unaccompanied. unaccompanied. So you're talking about possibly 40 kilos of heroin coming in every day. Bringing in the drugs was one step, but Galante needed a distribution network, and he hit upon the idea of using pizza parlors as outlets. This also allowed him to strike at his hated rivals in the process. The Gambino crime family had dominated the cheese and pizza industries for years. They monopolized the supply chain to the pizza parlors and shut down competition. Then in the 70s, a spate of mysterious fires signaled the start of Galante's heroin campaign. As the Gambino restaurants burned, New pizza parlors owned by Galante opened in their place, and Galante used them to distribute vast amounts of heroin to the dealers. 
a, a, a drug dealer of his magnitude, the person that was bringing it in, would not cut it. It would come in pure if it was 90 plus percent purity. It would just be distributed. A kilo came in, his people would distribute that pure kilo. Former NYPD detective Bill Clark worked the case. Uh, again, they would offer it to, they would sell wholesale. They weren't cutting the drugs in the street. That was the one they did. They did stay away from that. But they, they were selling to the, in the ghetto. They would sell it to the black drug dealers who were taking all the heat for this. In a short time, Galante had once again built up his vast international drugs network. He dominated importation from Europe and distribution throughout the United States. Narcotics agent Frank Panessa witnessed this firsthand. The money, the billions of dollars that they were making, uh, and not only uh, through the Northeast, he had distribution uh, throughout the United States. Uh, in Puerto Rico, I, I dealt with people in Puerto Rico that were getting their heroin from, from Galante's people. By 1978, just four years after getting out of prison, the heroin business was completely back under Galante's control. It was a ruthlessly fast rise to power, to an empire built on fear, intimidation, and callousness. Crime author Thomas Repetto. Galante had a very unpleasant personality. Even, even his own men did not. One time, um, an FBI agent went along with a group of underlings to stand guard outside a restaurant where Galante was eating. And the FBI agent, later became famous as Donnie Brasco, looked in and he said, he doesn't look like much. He's an old, short guy. And the other gangsters said, look out, he's mean. They were afraid of him. And don't mess with him. Galante had a particularly cruel way of testing heroin's purity, known as the black man test. He would have his men abduct a black addict from Harlem and drug him with two bags of heroin. And if he died in a set time frame, it meant the drug was pure. But soon he realized that drug purity was overrated. Cutting the heroin with additives would mean more supply and more money. Uh, Galante was his own worst enemy. He would make millions of dollars if he left it alone, but he was greedy, so he would put, as we say, he would put a whack on it. Uh, he would add quinine to it, so something that was 90% uh, heroin, uh, he would whack it so it was 70% heroin and make even more money selling it as a pure, uh, pure heroin. Everything was going according to plan, and the money was streaming in. Then, in 1978, his crimes caught up with him. He was arrested and charged with violating the terms of his parole. He'd been spotted with other criminals, most notably at Disneyland three years earlier. It looked like he would be back behind bars in no time. But Galante was prepared for this and had a not-so-secret weapon, his attorney, Roy Cohn. Cohn was a controversial figure who had made his name on high-profile Senate committees like the McCarthy hearings. And throughout the 70s, he represented a number of infamous mafia clients. In the past, Cohn had been charged with jury tampering and perjury, seen as too cozy with the mob. Nevertheless, 
He was an undisputed star when it came to getting mafia men off the hook. And once again, Cohn succeeded, getting the violation charge overturned. You guys probably already know about the many excellent podcasts from How Stuff Works. Well, they've got a new one from their comedy division you need to check out. It's called Behind the Bastards. Robin Evans is the host. He used to be the editor at Cracked.com, and he's joined by a rotating guest cast of L.A.'s best comedians. Their mission? Fill in the gaps left by a more... traditional history education. Like, you already know that Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, but you probably don't know that he wrote romance novels, or how he punished his kid for misbehaving. Let's just say it involves burning hundreds of cars. But you have to listen to the show to learn more. Or you may think you know Hitler, but you've probably never heard about his whip-wielding, chain-farting hipster phase. The most terrible people in history are also often the most ridiculous. Robert Evans finds that glorious weirdness and delivers it to his rotating cast of comedian guests. Every Tuesday, Robert brings his listeners a new tale from someone terrible. Listen, subscribe, and rate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to find your podcasts. With the law out of the way for now, Galante could now turn his attention to an even more pressing threat, his fellow mobsters. He knew they wanted a piece of his drugs profits, but he didn't intend to share it. So he came up with a solution to protect himself. He recruited a band of specialist killers, imported directly from the same town as his family in the Sicilian homeland, Castelmare del Golfo. Former NYPD detective Bill Clark. They were from Italy and came out and largely were trusted by Galenti because they came from the town of Castellamari del Golfo. And I think their allegiance also grew out of the fact that with their families back in Italy, if they stepped out of line, they would lose their aunts, their uncles, and stuff like that. They were known by the derogatory nickname Zips. Frank Panessa. Uh, the Zips were people, Sicilians, brought over, primarily that were associated with the Bonanno family in Sicily, brought over by Galante to run the pizza shops that they had all over the, uh, New York and Pennsylvania, not only to distribute the heroin, but to uh, uh, use these Zips uh, for, for murders and anything else that they needed from them. To Galante, the Zips were not soft like American gangsters, but schooled in the old-fashioned ways of doing things. They had no qualms with killing anyone at all, and their loyalty was legendary. But the most appealing factor was that they had no criminal record in the States. Retired NYPD detective Joe Coffey and crime author Thomas Repetto. They bring him over here because nobody knows him. They bring him over here to do hits. The Zips would kill anybody they were assigned to kill. 
American hitmen did not like the idea of shooting policemen, prosecutors, or judges. They were off limits to most of the mob. But the Zips would take a contract on anybody. With rival factions within his own mob family and powerful enemies like the Gambinos, Galante used the Zips to make sure no one messed with him. Two of his most trusted Zips were Cesare Bonaventre, known as the Tall Guy, and his cousin, Baldassare Baldo Amato. They were also his bodyguards. Cesare was a, a very imposing figure. He was six foot seven, and uh, the type that, uh, if he had a mirror in front of him, he'd constantly be staring into the mirror. He had blonde hair, you know, and the uh, very vain person. They, they were responsible for, for murders. They were used uh, to collect money. Uh, they controlled uh, card games in Brooklyn. And if somebody uh, didn't pay up with the money that they lost, they would send out uh, 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 Cesare Bonaventure and, and Amato. To ensure their loyalty further, the Zips were rewarded by being made into the crime family. They were formally initiated into the mob and given their own money-making operations. All of a sudden, they come here and have a beautiful house and have money in the bank and money and cars and stuff. They felt that they're very much indebted to the people that brought them here. With the Zips watching his every move, Galante felt untouchable. So much so that he didn't even bother carrying a gun. Oh, without a doubt, he would f feel safe with them. Uh, he was the one that recruited them. He was the one that made them. They were making major money with him. Galante was riding high at the peak of his career. He was shifting millions of dollars worth of heroin a year. He was taking charge as head of the family. And he was surrounded by loyal guards. He'd spent so much time in jail dreaming of this moment. Now that it was real, he thought he was invulnerable. But in truth, the respect accorded him was often fickle. His money was making other mobsters jealous, and many still refused to recognize his status as self-proclaimed head of the family. This was especially true with the supporters of the imprisoned Bonanno family boss, Philip Rastelli. And so, as the summer heat began to settle on New York, the forces that had once worked in his favor now worked against him behind his back. Thomas Repetto. And he was getting a little too big for his britches. In the meantime, one faction of the Manano family did not like him. They did not like him heading the family. Supposedly, they made an alliance with a faction of the Gambino family. Uh, they made an alliance with the underboss, who was very, very powerful for an underboss, Nello Della Croce. This alliance with Della Croce would prove deadly. On July 12, 1979, Galante's driver dropped him off at Joe and Mary's Italian restaurant on Knickerbocker Avenue in Brooklyn. The restaurant belonged to his cousin, and Galante was visiting to wish him well on a forthcoming trip. Joe Coffey and Frank Panessa set the scene. You have to see the layout. I'll give you the layout. It's a long, narrow restaurant. You come in the front door of Nicobanco Avenue, you go in, there's, there's tables and chairs in the restaurant, 
And in the back of the restaurant, you gotta remember this was in the summertime. In the back of the restaurant is a garden cafe type uh, with tables and chairs. He ate there many times. Uh, he was in the back yard where they had tables. Uh, he had his two trusted bodyguards who were armed. Um, he had a friend that he met there. He had the uh, restaurant owner. Uh, they had just had a big meal. He's about to light a cigar when the three shooters come in. Uh, three people walked in, uh, two of them with shotguns, one with a pistol, and just uh, blew them away. Galante was gunned down, his cigar still in his mouth. Giuseppe Torano, his cousin, was also killed, along with a second lunch companion, Leonardo Coppola. The news of the shooting reached police detective Bill Clark. Riding in the car, and I hear a job come over the radio, shots fired, three guys with ski masks. And, you know, you get a lot of unfounded calls, but this just had a some element that sounded like it might be the real deal. The cops rushed to the restaurant. The scene inside was bloody and horrific. We get there, well, Galenti is laying in a in the tomato patch in the backyard, and I'll give you his coat. He's got a cigar in his mouth, and he's got a Zippo lighter in his hand. When you stepped into the yard, uh, the first person that probably was shot was the owner of the restaurant, Mr. Torano. He was in the, his, he was lay, laying right there with a head wound. Uh, just on the other side of this table, with a big gallon of red wine was Carmine and he had fallen back in his chair, he had the cigar in his mouth. And then around the other side of the table in the corner was uh, Leonardo Coppolo. And he had uh, his brains were just laying out next to him. At first it was unclear who the dead men were, least of all that one of them was one of the biggest mobsters in town. Out. Now, I didn't know who these people were at the time. So finally, once we sealed off the crime scene, I went ahead and I sat the daughter down and started asking her who was in the restaurant when this happened. And she started telling me uh, who had been there, and then she said, and, and Uncle Carmine. I says, uh, Carmine who? She says, Carmine Galente. I says, wait a second, you're telling me that one of those guys in the yard is Carmine? She says, he must be, he didn't come out. Local news crews managed to grab a shot of Galante with his trademark cigar still burning in his mouth, splayed out on the ground by the unfinished meal. The image by photographer Frank Castorol became an iconic photo of the Mafia's bloody reality. It was an enterprising newspaper photographer who went up on the roof of the building because we cut it all access to the restaurant off. They couldn't get in. Went up on the roof with a camera and from the roof, he took a picture of Galenti laying in a tomato plant patch in that pose with the cigar in his thing. So friends of mine in Washington in the Department of Justice said, Joe Coffey put that cigar in his mouth. <laughs> of course, I didn't. That was actually the way it happened. He saw the shooters and clenched down on it. And that was the famous picture that went out across the world. Former narcotics agent Frank Panessa. It was well planned because a car was waiting for them on the uh, outside the restaurant and, and they got away with it. The hitman's getaway car was recovered a few blocks away. 
No one knew who was driving it, or no one was talking. And there was an even greater mystery. Where were the Zips, Galante's trusted bodyguards? Witnesses spoke of two other men in leather jackets, fitting the description of Cesare Bonaventre and Baldo Amato, hurrying away from the crime scene. It looked like the men hired to protect Galante had betrayed him. It became one of the most high-profile cases for the New York police and the FBI, and one they needed to solve to show they were coming down hard on organized crime. In the end, the only clue was from a stroke of luck. Surveillance of Gambino family members at a social club showed them in a celebratory mood. They started the camera going right across from the Ravenite Social Club of everything happening there. They saw some of the, uh, some of the banana faction come over and give high fives with Nello Della Croce's people there. These guys go up and it's like Anella Della Croce, big hug, a kiss, and it was like, you know, it was everything but a, a touchdown signal in the, in the end zone. This is right after the, the Galenti killing. And that really gave us the information that it was a mob commission sanctioned hit. That surveillance evidence would lead to the only conviction to date. Anthony Bruno Indelicato was charged as one of Galante's masked killers. No one else was charged, including the two Zips. They turned themselves in to be interviewed a couple of days later, and uh, I met them at the DA's office and basically they had their attorney with them and they refused anything I asked them. The motive for the murder was clear. Galante had become rich through drugs and refused to share his wealth. This had made him enemies, both inside and outside his own family. It was just too much money for them to pass up. You know, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. It's one of those situations where you make a lot of enemies and your enemies get together and decide you should go. He, he could have made millions of dollars on just distributing the pure heroin, but going back to this, this thing he had in his mind, uh, going back to the 50s, he wanted that control. And that was his downfall. There was a thought as to why the Zips turned on him. After Galante's death, Cesare Bonaventre took over his drug business. He continued to distribute heroin by exploiting what now became known as the pizza connection, and Bonaventre made even more money than Galante had. A chance encounter on an airplane ended the pizza connection era. Bundles of cash were found, wrapped in aprons from a pizza parlor, and a showcase trial in 1985 brought it down for good. But as for Carmine Galante, he left behind a legacy of unusual lessons. He showed that focus and sheer determination could get you far, even after 12 years in prison. But his spectacular murder showed there's such a thing as being too ambitious and too greedy, even for the mafia. Yeah, he wanted to be, he wanted to be the guy. He wanted to be the gate. But he never made it. Carmine was stepping up into a position that he was not going to be great. They didn't want him in. I think it was just the question of that he was not the kind of person that they wanted in that powerful a position. 
and the only way to, to prevent him from taking over was to kill him. Galante was a ruthless street thug who certainly got what was coming. In the end, he was so loathed by his fellows that he was even refused a Catholic funeral mass. Instead, he was buried in a plot, surrounded by just a small group of close family. Few of his wider crime family bothered to pay their respects. It was a true sign of an unloved and feared man, and final insults to someone hated by those who knew him. People will remember the photo of a dead Carmine Galante with a cigar in his mouth, blood pooling under him. The self-proclaimed boss of all bosses who was killed in the hit of hits. It was a fitting end for the man who, more than any other, was responsible for flooding the United States with heroin. Mafia will be taking a break next week, but we'll be back July 11th. In the next episode, Alan Dorfman was a college-educated World War II Marine who had a steady job teaching phys ed, but he wanted more. Dorfman was a white-collar type thug. Uh, he controlled money. Uh, Dorfman would never be involved in a burglary or an armed robbery or, or, or an extortion. That's not what he did. Uh, he was a different kind of criminal. In a time when the FBI was using new surveillance technology to crack down on mob activity, Dorfman was able to hide things in plain sight working as the liaison for the mob and corrupt union officials like Jimmy Hoffa. I thought Hoffa looked at Dorfman as somebody who had a law degree, uh, who understood the underworld, uh, and who would cut a deal. Each needed the other at times for some special purpose that benefited one or both of them. Dorfman became an essential cog in the mafia money machine until he became a liability. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley and Rachel Jacobs and Bettina Vasquez for World Media Rights. We had editing help from David Markowitz, with additional production from World Media Rights by Gerald Zibingwa. David McNabb is the series' creative director. And the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Indochino for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.